Hello and welcome to the Ghost Story Reading Club, the first ever episode that we're recording. My name's Joran Mandik. I'm your host here. And I'm Bella May Gray, and I'm your other host. What we'll be doing on this podcast is we're going to look at horror in all its different facets. Ghost stories, horror stories, scary shit. Anything that creeps you out. Goosebumpy stuff. And every month, hopefully, we will uh, look at a different theme and sort of go into like a little bit more in-depth discussion of, of a certain type of horror. Yeah, and our idea, at least at the moment, is to have a two different types of horror story per podcast. So one is a classic and one is a little bit newer and maybe a little bit more familiar to our experiences. And we'll also have a guest on the show every time so we can talk and have a bit of a different input every time. And our very first guest ever is the wonderful Adrian Masella Camera. Yep. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I don't know why I waved. <laughs> you can feel the wave through the podcast, I think, personally. <laughs> so, uh, what do you do? You're an artist? Uh, yeah, I do like illustration, like sort of more like fantasy style. Um, and, then... and I guess like sort of maybe maybe it like tends to be like a little bit like creepy or, or like a little bit darker. But yeah. Yeah, I've seen them. They're amazingly detailed. Yeah, no uh, wonder you're here on this show. <laughs> creepy and yeah. dark. You're also a tattoo artist though. Uh, uh, I wouldn't say like a more like amateur tattoo artist. Uh, yeah. Don't tell us that now. You just tattooed both of us. <laughs> I'm I'm pretty sure I pre I preface that sesh with with letting you know that I it's am true. not a fully qualified licensed tattoo artist. Yeah, we provoked you to do it. <laughs> we bullied you. It's true. <laughs> so, uh, Adrian, what's the last what's the last horror movie you watched that you liked? Oh, that I liked. Uh, yeah, I think that's like. The genre with the most potential, but, like, also the genre that generally tends to be, like, actually the worst. Like, 99.9% .9 of horror <laughs> movies sure. are fucking terrible. Uh, but I feel like it's, like, the funnest genre. Um, but the last one that I saw and enjoyed was uh, It Follows. Um, yes. But, yeah, I just, it's, like, my favorite genre, but usually it sucks. Like, 99.9% .9 of horror movies are really bad, but it's, like, the genre that I'm, like, most excited about. It is so exciting. Why do you think people fuck it up so much? Uh, I think they just, like, sort of, like, follow, like, this just, like, really, like, tired tropes of, like, yeah, I don't know. There's just, like, like, I think I, that's why, like, it follows because it didn't go for, like, the jump scare, which I think is, like, mm. what wow. most of, like, the newer ones kind of go for. Like, who can get, like, the biggest jump scare? Yeah. Um, I love the vibey one, stuff, too. Yeah, but that's, like, not really anything happens. And you're just, like, you spend the entire time, like, not even looking at the characters and just looking, like, <laughs> like deep background <laughs> of the yeah. scene, like, trying to see if there's, like... Yeah, someone... On edge the entire time. Yeah. I love the whole concept of that film, how it's not a recognizable scary thing. It's just like something that looks so ordinary that the only way you pick it out is by that like rhythmic, slow, straight walk. There's yeah. something so interesting about making the scary thing in your film not the same in every scene. Yeah. I think it's genius. I really loved that film. Me too. Me too. Where was it as well? We just watched um, Crimson Peak as well. Bill and I went together. Mm. And in that movie, it's all about ghosts and the ghosts are super creepy. But oftentimes you see them without that jumping moment and they just kind of come creeping towards you. And it's scary as shit without the jumping moment. 
you know? Yeah. There were no real, like, shrieks, although I think maybe at one point I did shriek. But, <laughs> Certainly did. Uh, <laughs> you know, can testify to that. But, yeah, I, I like that kind of horror that is very beautiful as well and that maybe is more psychologically scary than just, like, oh, wow, the music is building up to a crescendo and now the door's slamming in someone's face. Although I really love that too. Yeah, I think, like, the slow burn is, like, definitely, mm. like, what I find, like, more scary if it's just, like, more, like, psychological thriller. Mm. Uh, like, The Shining, like, not, like, nothing really, like, super scary happens in it till yeah. like, the very end. It's just, like, this, like, slow buildup of, like, things that are just, like, kind of creepy and then, like... Yeah, but it's like every like one of like most people's like favorite scary movie. Yeah. That's actually super interesting that you mentioned that because I think that really ties into our concept of our first theme, if these walls could talk. But the general concept behind that is about like the familiar home or maybe home away from home in The Shining's case becoming super scary just through like the smallest little changes. And how terrifying it is when, like, the place that you're meant to feel safe becomes scary for you. Become the haunted place. Yeah. Mm. I think that's, like, a lot of horror films that I really like play on that. And I always find that really interesting and scary. Familiar things becoming the stuff that kills you. Yeah. You know, another example could be, like, stuffed toys. Like Chucky. Oh. Classic. <laughs> <laughs> for example. You know, the the, the really harmless things. Why is that, that that gets us so much, do you think? I think it's because everyone, well, maybe not everyone, but I feel like most people have those moments where they're like lying in bed and it's dark and they can kind of creep themselves out by what's in their own mind. And everyone has experienced that. Like that's why when we hear those stories or we watch those movies, we're like, oh my God, yes, I have lain in my bed by myself and been scared. Yeah. We, we can really empathize with that. As a child, more so for me. Oh, I've I still learned how feel to that. stop myself thinking creepy thoughts when I'm home alone. Yeah, <laughs> I think like the like common associations of things are just like oh, like if you like it's like you have like yeah like like similar toys or like, but like yeah, I find like stuff like that tends to be like or like why like I think like a home invasion movie is like more scary than a movie about like aliens. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Because, like, everyone lives in a home. Exactly. Like, even movies that are kind of, like, cheesy funny, like, scream. Yeah. When there's the opening scene, the girl's making popcorn in her house. She's getting a phone call and it's someone scary. In her house. In her house. There's something so, like, even though it's silly when you're watching it, you're like, I'm alone in my house, like, maybe making popcorn to watch this movie right now. <gasps> yeah. The, <laughs> the biggest safe zone that this girl had... It's not a safe zone anymore. She, she has nowhere to go that's safe. Yeah. Even what's that other movie? Uh, the one where, like, the call is coming from in the house. I feel like that's such a... That's I mean, like, that's such like, a I trope feel like that's now. Like, yeah. yeah. I feel like that's, like, a lot of movies. But I think, like, it's, like, always scary because, like, yeah. It's dark. You're Could watching a horror movie. Home. The phone rings. Ah! <laughs> 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 I love it. All right, so this week's theme, if these walls could talk, haunted houses, familiar things becoming scary, should we jump into our first story? Okay, uh, let's do it. What do we got? Well, this story is maybe kind of an unusual choice, but 
it was really important to us to find different voices and different types of horror stories. And this is one of my favorite just regular stories. And I didn't even think about it as being a horror story. And then suddenly it popped into my head. So this is called The Yellow Wallpaper, and it's by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. What year was that written, that story? So this story was written in 1892. Classic strong time for horror. But this story, I'd actually forgotten that that's when it was written because it seems so unbelievably modern. You know, the house that I live in was probably built around then, Grunderzeit. That's like most of these old apartment blocks in Berlin are around the 18... Let's say and, 70s, the earliest to like... And do you 900. have yellow wallpaper, Yuri? Should well, we be some, worried? Some, the gross spots, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this is called The Yellow Wallpaper by Charlotte Perkins Gilman. It is very seldom that mere ordinary people like John and myself secure ancestral halls for the summer. A colonial mansion, a hereditary estate, I would say a haunted house, and reach the height of romantic felicity. But that would be asking too much of fate. Still, I will proudly declare that there is something queer about it. Else, why should it be let so cheaply? And why have stood so long untenanted? John laughs at me, of course, but one expects that in marriage. John is practical in the extreme. He has no patience with faith, an intense horror of superstition, and he scoffs openly at any talk of things not to be felt and seen and put down in figures. John is a physician, and perhaps, I would not say it to a living soul, of course, but this is dead paper and a great relief to my mind, perhaps that is one reason I do not get well faster. You see, he does not believe I am sick. And what can one do? If a physician of high standing and one's own husband assures friends and relatives that there really is nothing the matter with one but temporary nervous depression, a slight hysterical tendency, what is one to do? My brother is also a physician and also of high standing, and he says the same thing. So I take phosphates or phosphites, whichever it is, and tonics, and journeys, and air, and exercise, and am absolutely forbidden to work until I am well again. Personally, I disagree with their ideas. Personally, I believe that congenial work with excitement and change would do me good. But what is one to do? I did write for a while in spite of them, but it does exhaust me a good deal, having to be so sly about it, or else meet with heavy opposition. I sometimes fancy that in my condition, if I had less opposition and more society and stimulus, but John says the very worst thing I can do is think about my condition, and I confess it always makes me feel bad. So I will let it alone and talk about the house, the most beautiful place. It is quite alone, standing well back from the road, quite three miles from the village. It makes me think of English places that you read about, for there are hedges and walls and gates that lock, and lots of separate little houses for the gardeners and people. There is a delicious garden. I never saw such a garden, large and shady, full of box-bordered paths and lined with long grape-coloured arbours with seats under them. There were greenhouses too, but they are all broken now. 
There was some legal trouble, I believe. Something about the heirs and co-heirs. Anyway, the place has been empty for years. That spoils my ghostliness, I am afraid. But I don't care. There is something strange about the house. I can feel it. I even said so to John one moonlit evening. But he said what I felt was a draught and shut the window. I get unreasonably angry with John sometimes. I'm sure I never used to be so sensitive. I think it is due to the nervous condition. But John says if I feel so, I shall neglect proper self-control. So I take pains to control myself, before him at least, and that makes me very tired. I don't like our room a bit. I wanted one downstairs that opened on the piazza and had roses all over the window, and such pretty old-fashioned chintz hangings, but John would not hear of it. He said there was only one window and not room for two beds, and no near room for him if he took another. He is very careful and loving, and hardly lets me stir without special direction. I have a schedule prescription for each hour in the day. He takes all care from me, and so I feel basely ungrateful not to value it more. He said we came here solely on my account, that I was to have perfect rest and all the air I could get. Your exercise depends on your strength, my dear, he said, and your food somewhat on your appetite, but air you can absorb all the time. So we took the nursery at the top of the house. It's a big, airy room, the whole floor nearly, with windows that look all ways, and air and sunshine galore. It was nursery first, and then playroom and gymnasium, I should judge, for the windows are barred for little children, and there are rings and things in the walls. The paint and paper look as if a boy's school had used it. It is stripped off, the paper, in great patches all around the head of my bed, about as far as I can reach and in a great place on the other side of the room, low down. I never saw a worse paper in my life. One of those sprawling, flamboyant patterns committing every artistic sin. It is dull enough to confuse the eye in following, pronounced enough to constantly irritate and provoke study. And when you follow the lame, uncertain curves for a little distance, they suddenly commit suicide plunging off at outrageous angles, destroying themselves in unheard-of contradictions. The colour is repellent, almost revolting, a smouldering, unclean yellow, strangely faded by the slow-turning sunlight. It is a dull, yet lurid orange in some places, a sickly sulphur tint in others. No wonder the children hate it. I should hate it myself if I had to live in this room long. There comes John, and I must put this away. He hates to have me write a word. We have been here two weeks, and I haven't felt like writing before, since that first day. I am sitting by the window now, up in this atrocious nursery, and there is nothing to hinder my writing as much as I please. John is away all day, and even some nights when his cases are serious. I am glad my case is not serious. But these nervous troubles are dreadfully depressing. John does not know how much I really suffer. He knows there is no reason to suffer, and that satisfies him. Of course, it is only nervousness. It does weigh on me so not to do my duty in any way. I mean, to be such a help to John, such a real rest and comfort, and I, here I am, a comparative burden already. 
Nobody would believe what an effort it is to do what little I am able, to dress and entertain and other things. It is fortunate Mary is so good with the baby, such a dear baby. And yet I cannot be with him. It makes me so nervous. I suppose John never was nervous in his life. He laughs at me so about this wallpaper. At first he meant to repaper the room, but afterwards he said that I was letting it get the better of me, and that nothing was worse for a nervous patient than to give way to such fancies. He said that after the wallpaper was changed it would be the heavy bedstead, and then the barred windows, and then that gate at the head of the stairs, and so on. "'You know the place is doing you good,' he said. "'And really, dear, I don't care to renovate the house for just a three-month rental.' "'Then do let us go downstairs,' I said. "'There are such pretty rooms there.' "'Then he took me in his arms and called me a blessed little goose, "'and said he would go down to the cellar, if I wished, "'and have it whitewashed into the bargain. "'But he is right enough about the beds and windows and things. "'It is an airy and comfortable room, as anyone would wish, "'and, of course, I would not be so silly as to make him uncomfortable just for a whim.' I'm really getting quite fond of the big room, all but that horrid paper. Out of one window I can see the garden, those mysterious deep-shaded arbours, the riotous old-fashioned flowers, and bushes and gnarly trees. Out of another I get a lovely view of the bay, and a little private wharf belonging to the estate. There is a beautiful shaded lane that runs down there from the house, I always fancy I see people walking in these numerous paths and arbours, but John has cautioned me not to give way to fancy in the least. He says that with my imaginative power and habit of story-making, a nervous weakness like mine is sure to lead to all manner of excited fancies, and that I ought to use my will and good sense to check the tendency. So I try. I think sometimes that if only I were well enough to write a little, it would relieve the press of ideas and rest me. But I find I get pretty tired when I try. It is so discouraging not to have any advice and companionship about my work. When I get really well, John says we will ask Henry and Julia down for a long visit, but he says he would as soon put fireworks in my fillocates as let me have those stimulating people about me now. I wish I could get well faster. But I must not think about that. This paper looks to me as if it knew what a vicious influence it had. There is a recurrent spot where the pattern lolls like a broken neck and two bulbous eyes stare at you upside down. I get positively angry with the impertinence of it and the everlastingness. Up and down and sideways they crawl, and those absurd, unblinking eyes are everywhere. There is one place where two breaths didn't match, and the eyes go all up and down the line, one a little higher than the other. I never saw so much expression in an inanimate thing before, and we all know how much expression they have. I used to lie awake as a child and get more entertainment and terror out of blank walls and plain furniture than most children could find in a toy store. I remember what a kindly wink the knobs of our old, big bureau used to have, and there was one chair that always seemed like a strong friend. I used to feel that if any of the other things looked too fierce, I could always hop into that chair and be safe. 
The furniture in this room is no worse than inharmonious, however, for we had to bring it all from downstairs. I suppose when this was used as a playroom they had to take the nursery things out, and no wonder. I never saw such ravages as the children have made here. The wallpaper, as I said before, is torn off in spots, and it sticks closer than a brother. They must have had perseverance as well as hatred. Then the floor is scratched and gouged and splintered. The plaster itself is dug out here and there, and this great heavy bed, which is all we found in the room, looks as if it had been through the wars. But I don't mind it a bit, only the paper. There comes John's sister, such a dear girl as she is, and so careful of me. I must not let her find me writing. She is a perfect and enthusiastic housekeeper, and hopes for no better profession. I verily believe she thinks it is the writing which makes me sick. But I can write when she is out, and see her a long way off from these windows. There is one that commands the road, a lovely, shaded, winding road, and one that just looks over the country, a lovely country too full of great elms and velvet meadows. This wallpaper has a kind of sub-pattern in a different shade, a particularly irritating one, for you can only see it in certain lights, and not clearly then. But in places where it isn't faded and when the sun is just so, I can see a strange, provoking, formless sort of figure that seems to skulk about behind that silly and conspicuous front design. Their sister on the stairs. Well, the 4th of July is over. The people are gone and I am just tired out. John thought it might do me good to see a little company, so we had Mother and Nellie and the children down for a week. Of course I didn't do a thing. Jenny sees to everything now. But it tired me all the same. John says if I don't pick up faster he shall send me to Weir Mitchell in the fall. But I don't want to go there. I had a friend who was in his hands once, and she says he is just like John and my brother, only more so. Besides, it is such an undertaking to go so far. I don't feel as if it were worth while to turn my hand over for anything, and I am getting dreadfully fretful and quarrelous. I cry at nothing, and cry most of the time. Of course, I don't when John is here or anybody else, but when I am alone, and I am alone a good deal now. John is kept in town very often by serious cases, and Jenny is good and lets me alone when I want her to. So I walk a little in the garden or down that lovely lane, sit on the porch under the roses, and lie down up here a good deal. I'm getting really fond of the room in spite of the wallpaper, perhaps because of the wallpaper. It dwells in my mind so. I lie here on this great immovable bed. It is nailed down, I believe and follow that pattern about by the hour. It is as good as gymnastics, I assure you. I start, we'll say, at the bottom, down in the corner over there where it has not been touched, and I determine for the thousandth time that I will follow that pointless pattern to some sort of conclusion. I know a little of the principle of design, and I know this thing was not arranged on any laws of radiation or alternation or repetition or symmetry or anything else that I have ever heard of. It is repeated, of course, by the breaths, but not otherwise. Looked at in one way, each breath stands alone, the bloated curves and flourishes, a kind of debased Romanesque with delirium tremens 
go waddling up and down in columns of fatuity. But, on the other hand, they connect diagonally, and the sprawling outlines run off in great slanting waves of optic horror, like a lot of wallowing seedweeds in full chase. The whole thing goes horizontally too, at least it seems so, and I exhaust myself in trying to distinguish the order of its going in that direction. They have used a horizontal breath for a freeze, and that adds wonderfully to the confusion. There is one end of the room where it is almost intact, and there, when the cross lights fade and the low sun shines directly upon it, I can almost fancy radiation after all. The indeterminable grotesques seem to form around a common centre and rush off in headlong plunges of equal distraction. It makes me tired to follow up. I will take a nap, I guess. I don't know why I should write this. I don't want to. I don't feel able. And I know John would think it absurd. But I must say what I feel and think in some way. It is such a relief but the effort is getting to be greater than the relief. Half the time now I am awfully lazy and lie down ever so much. John says I mustn't lose my strength and has me take cod liver oil and lots of tonics and things to say nothing of ale and wine and rare meat. Dear John, he loves me very dearly and hates to have me sick. I tried to have a real, reasonable, earnest talk with him the other day and tell him how I wish he would let me go and make a visit to Cousin Henry and Julia. But he said I wasn't able to go, nor able to stand it after I got there, and I did not make out a very good case for myself, for I was crying before I had finished. It is getting to be a great effort for me to think straight. Just this nervous weakness, I suppose. And dear John gathered me up in his arms and carried me upstairs and laid me on the bed and sat by me and read to me till it tired my head. He said I was his darling and his comfort and all he had, and that I must take care of myself for his sake and keep well. He says no one but myself can help me out of it, and that I must use my will and self-control and not let any silly fancies run away with me. There's one comfort— the baby is well and happy, and does not have to occupy this nursery with the horrid wallpaper. If we had not used it, that blessed child would have. What a fortunate escape! Why, I wouldn't have a child of mine, an impressionable little being, live in such a room for worlds. I never thought of it before, but it is lucky that John kept me here after all. I can stand it so much easier than a baby, you see. Of course, I never mention it to them any more. I am too wise. But I keep watch of it all the same. There are things in that paper that nobody knows but me, or ever will. Behind that outside pattern, the dim shapes get clearer every day. It is always the same shape, only very numerous. And it is like a woman stooping down and creeping about behind that pattern. I don't like it a bit. I wonder... I begin to think. I wish John would take me away from here. It is so hard to talk with John about my case, because he is so wise and because he loves me so. But I tried it last night. It was moonlight. The moon shines in all around, just as the sun does. I hate to see it sometimes. It creeps so slowly, and always comes in by one window or another. 
John was asleep and I hated to waken him, so I kept still and watched the moonlight on that undulating wallpaper till I felt creepy. The faint figure behind seemed to shake the pattern, just as if she wanted to get out. I got up softly and went to feel and see if the paper did move, and when I came back John was awake. "'What is it, little girl?' he said. "'Don't go walking about like that, you'll get cold.' I thought it was a good time to talk, so I told him that I really was not gaining here and that I wished he would take me away. "'Why, darling,' he said, "'our lease will be up in three weeks, and I can't see how to leave before.' The repairs are not done at home, and I cannot possibly leave town just now. Of course, if you were in danger, I could and would. But you really are better, dear, whether you can see it or not. I am a doctor, dear, and I know. You are gaining flesh and colour. Your appetite is better. I really feel much easier about you. I don't weigh a bit more, said I, nor as much. And my appetite may be better in the evening when you are here, but it is worse in the morning when you are away. Bless her little heart, he said with a big hug. She shall be as sick as she pleases. But now let's improve the shining hours by going to sleep and talk about it in the morning. And you won't go away? I asked gloomily. Why, how can I, dear? It is only three weeks more, and then we take a nice little trip of a few days while Jenny is getting the house ready. "'Really, dear, you are better.' "'Better in body, perhaps,' I began, and stopped short, "'for he sat up straight and looked at me with such a stern, reproachful look "'that I could not say another word. "'My darling,' said he, "'I beg of you, for my sake and for our child's sake, as well as for your own, "'that you will never for one instant let that idea enter your mind.' There is nothing so dangerous, so fascinating to a temperament like yours. It is a false and foolish fancy. Can you not trust me as a physician when I tell you so? So, of course, I said no more on that score, and we went to sleep before long. He thought I was asleep first, but I wasn't, and lay there for hours trying to decide whether that front pattern and the back pattern really did move together or separately. On a pattern like this, by daylight, there is a lack of sequence, a defiance of law, that is a constant irritant to a normal mind. The colour is hideous enough, and unreliable enough, and infuriating enough, but the pattern is torturing. You think you have mastered it, but just as you get well underway in following, it turns a back somersault and there you are, slaps you in the face, knocks you down, and tramples upon you. It is like a bad dream. The outside pattern is a florid arabesque, reminding one of a fungus. If you can imagine a toadstool in joints, a string of toadstools, budding and sprouting in endless convolutions, why, it is something like that. That is, sometimes. There is one marked peculiarity about this paper, a thing nobody seems to notice but myself. And that is that it changes as the light changes. When the sun shoots in through the east window, I always watch for that first long, straight ray. It changes so quickly that I never can quite believe it. That's why I watch it always. By moonlight, the moon shines in at night when there is a moon. I wouldn't know it was the same paper. 
at night in any kind of light, in twilight, candlelight, lamplight, and worst of all, by moonlight. It becomes bars. The outside pattern, I mean, and the woman behind it is as plain as can be. I didn't realise for a long time what the thing was that showed behind, but that dim sum pattern. But now I am quite sure it is a woman. By daylight she is subdued, quiet. I fancy it is the pattern that keeps her so still. It is so puzzling, it keeps me quiet by the hour. I lie down ever so much now. John says it is good for me and to sleep all I can. Indeed, he started the habit by making me lie down for an hour after each meal. It is a very bad habit, I am convinced. For you see, I don't sleep. And that cultivates deceit, for I don't tell them I'm awake. Oh, no. The fact is, I am getting a little afraid of John. He seems very queer sometimes, and even Jenny has an inexplicable look. It strikes me occasionally, just as a scientific hypothesis, that perhaps it is the paper. I have watched John when he did not know I was looking, and come into the room suddenly on the most innocent excuses, and I've caught him several times looking at the paper, and Jenny too. I caught Jenny with her hand on it once. She didn't know I was in the room, and when I asked her in a quiet, a very quiet voice, with the most restrained manner possible, what she was doing with the paper. She turned around as if she had been caught stealing and looked quite angry, asked me why I should frighten her so. Then she said that the paper stained everything it touched, that she had found yellow smooches on all my clothes and John's, and she wished we would be more careful. Did that not sound innocent? But I know she was studying that pattern, and I am determined that nobody shall find it out but myself. Life is very much more exciting now than it used to be. You see, I have something more to expect, to look forward to, to watch. I really do eat better, and am more quiet than I was. John is so pleased to see me improve. He laughed a little the other day, and said I seemed to be flourishing in spite of my wallpaper. I turned it off with a laugh. I had no intention of telling him it was because of the wallpaper. He would have made fun of me. He might even want to take me away. I don't want to leave now until I have found it out. There is a week more, and I think that will be enough. I'm feeling ever so much better. I don't sleep much at night, for it is so interesting to watch developments. But I sleep a good deal in the daytime. In the daytime it is tiresome and perplexing. There are always new shoots on the fungus, and new shades of yellow all over it. I cannot keep count of them, though I have tried conscientiously. It is the strangest yellow, that wallpaper. It makes me think of all the yellow things I ever saw. Not beautiful ones like buttercups, but old, foul, bad yellow things. But there is something else about that paper. The smell. I noticed it the moment we came into the room, but with so much air and sun it was not bad. Now we have had a week of fog and rain, and whether the windows are open or not, the smell is here. It creeps all over the house. I find it hovering in the dining room, skulking in the parlour, hiding in the hall, lying in wait for me on the stairs. It gets into my hair. 
even when I go to ride, if I turn my head suddenly and surprise it, there is that smell. Such a peculiar odour too. I have spent hours in trying to analyse it, to find what it smelled like. It is not bad, at first, and very gentle, but quite the subtlest, most enduring odour I ever met. In this damp weather it is awful. I wake up in the night and find it hanging over me. It used to disturb me at first. I thought seriously of burning the house, to reach the smell. But now I am used to it. The only thing I can think of is that it is like the colour of the paper. A yellow smell. There is a very funny mark on this wall, low down, near the mop board. A streak that runs round the room. It goes behind every piece of furniture except the bed. A long, straight, even smooch, as if it had been rubbed over and over. I wonder how it was done and who did it and what they did it for. Round and round and round. Round and round and round. It makes me dizzy. I really have discovered something at last. Through watching so much at night, when it changes so, I have finally found out. The front pattern does move, and no wonder, the woman shakes it. Sometimes I think that there are a great many women behind, and sometimes only one, and she crawls around fast, and her crawling shakes it all over. Then in the very bright spots she keeps still, and in the very shady spots she just takes hold of the bars and shakes them hard. And she is all the time trying to climb through. But nobody could climb through that pattern. It strangles so. I think that is why it has so many heads. They get through, and then the pattern strangles them off and runs and turns them upside down and makes their eyes white. If those heads were covered or taken off, it would not be half so bad. I think that woman gets out in the daytime, and I'll tell you why. Privately. I've seen her. I can see her out of every one of my windows. It is the same woman I know, for she is always creeping, and most women do not creep by daylight. I saw her on that long road under the trees, creeping along, and when a carriage comes she hides under the blackberry vines. I don't blame her a bit. It must be very humiliating to be caught creeping by daylight. I always lock the door when I creep by daylight. I can't do it at night, for I know John would suspect something at once. And John is so queer now that I don't want to irritate him. I wish he would take another room. Besides, I don't want anybody to get that woman out at night but myself. I often wonder if I could see her out of all the windows at once. But, turn as fast as I can, I can only see out of one at a time. And though I always see her, she may be able to creep faster than I can turn. I have watched her sometimes away in the open country, creeping as fast as a cloud, shadow in a high wind. If only that top pattern could be gotten off from the other one. I mean to try it, little by little. I have found out another funny thing but I shan't tell it this time. It does not do to trust people too much. There are only two more days to get this paper off, and I believe John is beginning to notice. I don't like the look in his eyes. 
and I heard him ask Jenny a lot of professional questions about me, and she had a very good report to give. She said I slept a good deal in the daytime. John knows I don't sleep very well at night, for all I'm so quiet. He asked me all sorts of questions too, and pretended to be very loving and kind, as if I couldn't see through him. Still, I don't wonder he acts so, sleeping under this paper for three months. It only interests me, but I feel sure John and Jenny are secretly affected by it. Hurrah, this is the last day, but it is enough. John is to stay in town overnight and won't be out until this evening. Jenny wanted to sleep with me, the sly thing, but I told her I should undoubtedly sleep better for a night alone. That was clever, for really I wasn't alone a bit. As soon as it was moonlight and that poor thing began to crawl and shake at the pattern, I got up and ran to help her. I pulled and she shook. I shook and she pulled. And before morning we had peeled off yards of that paper. A strip about as high as my head and halfway around the room. And then when the sun came and that awful pattern began to laugh at me, I declared I would finish it today. We go away tomorrow, and they are moving all my furniture down again to leave things as they were before. Jenny looked at the wall in amazement, but I told her merrily that I did it out of pure spite at the vicious thing. She laughed and said she wouldn't mind doing it herself, but I must not get tired. How she betrayed herself that time. But I am here, and no person touches this paper but me, not alive. She tried to get me out of the room. It was too patent, but I said it was so quiet and empty and clean now that I believed I would lie down again and sleep all I could and not wake me even for dinner. I would call when I woke. So now she is gone, and the servants gone, and the things are gone, and there is nothing left but that great bedstead nailed down with the canvas mattress we found on it. We shall sleep downstairs tonight and take the boat home tomorrow. I quite enjoy the room, now it is bare again. How those children did tear about here. This bedstead is fairly gnawed, but I must get to work. I have locked the door and thrown the key down into the front path. I don't want to go out, and I don't want anybody to come in till John comes. I want to astonish him. I've got a rope up here that even Jenny did not find. If that woman does get out and tries to get away, I can tie her. But I forgot I could not reach far without anything to stand on, and this bed will not move. I tried to lift and push until I was lame, and then I got so angry that I bit off a little piece of one corner, and it hurt my teeth. Then I peeled off all the paper I could reach standing on the floor, but it sticks horribly and the pattern just enjoys it. All those strangled heads and bulbous eyes and wobbling figures growths just shriek with derision. I am getting angry enough to do something desperate. To jump out of the window would be an admirable exercise, but the bars are too strong to even try. Besides, I wouldn't do it. Of course not. I know well enough that a step like that is improper and might be misconstrued. I don't like to look out of the windows even, but there are so many of those creeping women and they do creep so fast. I wonder if they all came out of that wallpaper as I did. 
but I am securely fastened now by my well-hidden rope. You don't get me out in the road there. I suppose I shall have to get back behind the pattern when it comes night, and that is hard. It is so pleasant to be out in this great room and creep round as I please. I don't want to go outside. I won't, even if Jenny asks me to. For outside you have to creep on the ground and everything is green instead of yellow. But here I can creep smoothly on the floor and my shoulder just fits in that long smooch around the wall so I cannot lose my way. Why, there's John at the door. It is no use, young man, you can't open it. How he does call and pound. Now he's crying for an axe. It would be a shame to break down that beautiful door. "'John, dear,' said I, in the gentlest voice, "'the key is down by the front steps under a plantation leaf.' "'That silenced him for a few moments. "'Then he said, very quietly indeed, "'Open the door, my darling.' "'I can't,' said I. "'The key is down by the front door under a plantation leaf.' "'And then I said it again several times, "'very gently and slowly.' and said it so often that he had to go and see, and he got it, of course, and came in. He stopped short by the door. "'What is the matter?' he cried. "'For God's sake, what are you doing?' I kept on creeping just the same, but I looked at him over my shoulder. "'I've got out at last,' said I, "'in spite of you and Jane, "'and I've pulled up most of the paper so you can't put me back.' Now, why would that man have fainted? But he did, and right across my path by the wall, so that I had to creep over him every time. <laughs> oh, that's so creepy at the end. <laughs> so... In that story, there's this point where she, like, speaks of that wallpaper fondly all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. I guess that's where it's almost like Stockholm Syndrome, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's the, the crossing over point of her when she stops kind of wanting to be a good wife to John and starts kind of taking her own feelings seriously, even though maybe that makes her seem more mad. It's actually the sanest point. Yeah, and at the end... Like, is that what that meant? They merge at the end? She kind of frees that ghost and goes all nutty? And then well, they become, yeah, it was, like, like, a little bit unclear of, like, what exactly happened. Yeah, I but think like, the, the idea is that all of these things that she's been thinking were all the children, like, made all this mess of the room before. It was It had been her all along. So the bed was kind of like knocked up and then she takes a bite of it but it's probably her that was my initial thought but they did just rock up weeks before yeah but and it was already along the wall that's from her creeping along the wall because it's at shoulder height so she made that but is she the woman in the wallpaper maybe you know what like the room that we're in right now has really yellow walls they're kind of more like beige I like to think of them as yellow. <laughs> For the purpose of this podcast, they're yellow. yellow. <laughs> yeah. This is irrelevant. How can I... I haven't even thought about this yet. But my housemate, when I moved into this house, she decided that she hated the wallpaper that was in her room 
which had like a pattern on it, like a soft kind of, it was a pretty gross pattern. And she pulled the entire wallpaper off and underneath it was super yellow, the entire wall. <gasps> oh my God, <laughs> that's amazing. And she did go a little bit insane since. <laughs> I saw in your kitchen how she had pulled the wallpaper off. Yeah, she's gone. She was insane. She was just in a room pulling off this wallpaper all day long. Ah, so we know the real life version of this story too. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I need to move out. Uh, no. No, you'll, lo- you'll learn to love it. Yeah. Uh-huh. As long as I can stand her creeping around. Yeah, there's a yeah. turning point. And the, the creeping is, is fine. So it's okay to creep. Yeah, I like to creep sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I think it's kind of... I had forgotten that this was written in 1892 because there's... I mean, it's kind of like one of the very early feminist texts, basically, because it's describing... I mean, her husband is gaslighting her in a way. He's pretending yeah. that there's nothing wrong with her. and But also maybe there is nothing wrong with her if she'd just been allowed to be a normal person but she's being locked up in this room she can't see anyone so it's one of those kind of like if she was just allowed to go out and have a good time and speak to people and write and creatively express herself but because she's being forced into this kind of role that she doesn't that she feels trapped by she becomes a creeping ghost yeah yeah he's taking away all her agency so she is becoming a ghost there's, I mean, there's so many different readings of it, which is why it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, today, something pretty creepy happened. <laughs> <laughs> I subscribe to this podcast, This American Life, and I just get the feed, right? It just downloads the newest episode, and so it's like number 500-something these days. Mm. And today, I look into my feed on my phone, and there's number 319 for no apparent reason. And I forget what the title was, but the entire episode was about ghost stories <laughs> <laughs> and about haunted houses and stuff. That's pretty amazing. How weird is that? Sounds or maybe it's just like there's like a Google algorithm that like just knows what you're interested in. Yeah, that's even scarier. That is truly scary. <laughs> but like... Like, I feel like all of my, like, yeah, like, all, like, the search history is just, like, conversations. Like, I feel like even sometimes, like, conversations that I have, like, away from the internet, and then I'll, like, log on, and, like, just, like, a banner ad will, will, like, be about that conversation. Metadata is the new metaphysics, maybe. (laughs) Whoa, so deep. Do we have another story? We have another story. Yeah. That was the classic. We do. Kind of on the same theme, but different. And if you're feeling tired at all, maybe you guys could just sit back, (laughs) have a cup of tea, have a little, get relaxed, but don't get too relaxed. Because this is. Well, you can't get too relaxed listening to this. You really can't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so this is from Creepy Pasta, which is kind of a. internet uh well it's a website where people post stories that they have made up there's some really amazing ones out there there's also some really not so great i yeah. guess exactly what we were talking about with is the movie the same 90 percent ratio yeah <laughs> sure is uh, but this one is one of the most popular ones and it's kind of a classic the credit is to michael whitehouse and it has 9.3 creepy jack-o'-lantern heads out of 10 creepy jack-o'-lantern heads So that's pretty fucking creepy. (laughs) Well, we'll be the judge of that. Yeah. 
Well, this is bedtime. Bedtime. <laughs> bedtime is supposed to be a happy event for a tired child. For me, it was terrifying. While some children might complain about being put to bed before they have finished watching a film or playing their favorite video game, when I was a child, nighttime was something to truly fear. Somewhere in the back of my mind, it still is. As someone who is trained in the sciences, I cannot prove that what happened to me was objectively real, but I can swear that what I experienced was genuine horror. A fear which in my life, I'm glad to say, has never been equaled. I will relate it to you all now as best as I can. Make of it what you will. But I'll be glad to just get it off my chest. I can't remember exactly when it started. But my apprehension towards falling asleep seemed to correspond with my being moved into a room of my own. I was eight years old at the time, and until then I had shared a room quite happily with my older brother. As is perfectly understandable for a boy five years my senior, my brother eventually wished for a room of his own, and as a result, I was given the room at the back of the house. It was a small, narrow, yet oddly elongated room, large enough for a bed and a couple of chests of drawers, but not much else. I couldn't really complain, because even at that age, I understood that we did not have a large house, and I had no real cause to be disappointed as my family was both loving and caring. It was a happy childhood, during the day. A solitary window looked out onto our garden, nothing out of the ordinary, but even during the day the light which crept into that room seemed almost hesitant. As my brother was given a new bed, I was given the bunk beds which we used to share. While I was upset about sleeping on my own, I was excited at the thought of being able to sleep in the top bunk, which seemed far more adventurous to me. From the very first night, I remember a strange feeling of unease creeping slowly from the back of my mind. I lay on the top bunk, staring down at my action figures and cars strewn across the green-blue carpet, as imaginary battles and adventures took place between the toys on the floor. I couldn't help but feel that my eyes were being drawn slowly towards the bottom bunk, as if something was moving in the corner of my eye, something which did not wish to be seen. The bunk was empty, impeccably made with a dark blue blanket tucked in neatly, partially covering two rather bland white pillows. I didn't think anything of it at the time. I was a child and the noise slipping under my door from my parents' television bathed me in a warm sense of safety and well-being. I fell asleep. When you awaken from a deep sleep to something moving or stirring, it can take a few moments for you to truly understand what is happening. The fog of sleep hangs over your eyes and ears even when lucid. Something was moving, there was no doubt about that. At first I wasn't sure what it was. Everything was dark, almost pitch black. But there was enough light creeping in from outside to outline that narrowly suffocating room. Two thoughts appeared in my mind almost simultaneously. The first was that my parents were in bed because the rest of the house lay both in darkness and silence. The second thought turned to the noise a noise which had obviously woken me. As the last cobwebs of sleep withered from my mind, 
the noise took on a more familiar form. Sometimes the simplest of sounds can be the most unnerving. A cold wind whistling through a tree outside, a neighbor's footsteps uncomfortably close, or, in this case, the simple sound of bedsheets rustling in the dark. That was it, bedsheets rustling in the dark, as if some disturbed sleeper was attempting to get all too comfortable in the bottom bunk. I lay there in disbelief, thinking that the noise was either my imagination or perhaps just my pet cat finding somewhere comfortable to spend the night. It was then that I noticed my door, shut as it had been as I'd fallen asleep. Perhaps my mum had checked in on me and the cat had sneaked into my room then. Yeah, that must have been it. I turned to face the wall, closing my eyes in the vain hope that I could get back to sleep. As I moved, the rustling noise from underneath me ceased. I thought that I must have disturbed my cat, but quickly I realised that the visitor in the bottom bunk was much less mundane than my pet trying to sleep, and much more sinister. As if alerted to and disgruntled by my presence, the disturbed sleeper began to toss and turn violently, like a child having a tantrum in their bed. I could hear the sheets twist and turn with increasing ferocity. Fear then gripped me, not like the subtle sense of unease I had had experienced earlier, but now potent and terrifying. My heart raced as my eyes panicked, scanning the almost impenetrable darkness. I let out a cry. As most young boys do, I instinctively shouted on my mother. I could hear something stir on the other side of the house, but as I began to breathe a sigh of relief that my parents were coming to save me, the bunk beds suddenly started to shake violently as if gripped by an earthquake, scraping against the wall. I could hear the sheets below me thrashing around as if tormented by malice. I did not want to jump down to safety as I feared the thing in the bottom bunk would reach out and grab me, pulling me into the darkness. So I stayed there white knuckles clenching my own blanket like a shroud of protection. The wait seemed like an eternity. The door finally and thankfully burst open, and I lay bathed in light while the bottom bunk, the resting place of my unwanted visitor, lay empty and peaceful. I cried and my mother consoled me. Tears of fear followed by relief streamed down my face. Yet through all the horror and relief, I did not tell her why I was so upset. I could not explain it, but it was as though whatever had been in that bunk would return if I even so much as spoke of it or uttered a single syllable of its existence. Whether that was the truth, I do not know, but as a child I felt as if that unseen menace remained close, listening. My mother lay in the empty bunk, promising to stay there until morning. Eventually my anxiety diminished. Tiredness pushed me back towards sleep, but I remained restless, waking several times momentarily to the sound of rustling bedsheets. I remember the next day wanting to go anywhere, be anywhere, but in that narrow, suffocating room. It was a Saturday and I played outside quite happily with my friends. 
Although our house was not large, we were lucky to have a long, sloping garden in the back. We often played there, as much of it was overgrown and we could hide in the bushes, climb in the huge sycamore tree which towered above all else, and easily imagine ourselves in the throes of a grand adventure in some untamed exotic land. As fun as it all was, occasionally my eye would turn to that small window, ordinary, slight and innocuous. But for me, that thin boundary was a looking-glass into a strange, cold pocket of dread. Outside the lush green surroundings of our garden filled with the smiling faces of my friends could not extinguish the creeping feeling crawling its way up my spine, each hair standing on end. The feeling of something in that room, watching me play, waiting for the night when I would be alone, eagerly filled with hate. It may sound strange to you, but by the time my parents ushered me back into the room for the night, I said nothing. I didn't protest. I didn't even make an excuse as to why I couldn't sleep there. I simply and sullenly walked into that room, climbed the few steps into the top bunk, and then waited. As an adult, I would be telling everyone about my experience. But even at that age, I felt almost silly to be talking about something for which I had no evidence. I would be lying, however, if I said this was my primary reason. I still felt that this thing would be enraged if I so much as spoke of it. It's funny how certain words remain hidden from your mind, no matter how blatant or obvious they are. One word came to me that night, lying there in the darkness alone, frightened, aware of a rotten change in the atmosphere, a thickening of the air as if something had displaced it. And as I heard the first casual twists of the sheets below, the first anxious increase of my heartbeat at the realisation that something was once again in the bottom bunk, that word, a word which had been sent into exile, filtered up through my consciousness, breaking free of all repression, gasping for air, screaming, etching and carving itself into my mind. Ghost. As this thought came to me, I noticed that my unwelcome visitor had ceased moving. The bedsheets lay calm and dormant, but they had been replaced by something far more hideous. A slow, rhythmic, rasping breath heaved and escaped from the thing below. I could imagine its chest rising and falling with each sordid, wheezing and garbled breath. I shuddered and hoped beyond all hope that it would leave without occurrence. The house lay, as it had the previous night, in a thick blanket of darkness. Silence prevailed, all but for the perverted breath of my as-yet-unseen bunkmate. I lay there terrified. I just wanted this thing to go, to leave me alone. What did it want? Then something unmistakably chilling transpired. It moved. It moved in a way different from before. When it threw itself around in the bottom bunk, it seemed unrestrained, without purpose, almost animalistic. 
This movement, however, was driven by awareness, with purpose, with a goal in mind. For that thing lying there in the darkness, that thing which seemed intent on terrorising a young boy, calmly and nonchalantly sat up. Its laboured breathing had become louder as now only a mattress and a few flimsy wooden slats separated my body from the unearthly breath below. I lay there, my eyes filled with tears. A fear which mere words cannot relate to you or anyone else coursed through my veins. I would not have believed that this fear could have been heightened, but I was so wrong. I imagined what this thing would look like, sitting there listening from below my mattress, hoping to catch the slightest hint that I was awake. Imagination then turned to an unnerving reality. It began to touch the wooden slats which my mattress sat on. It seemed to caress them gently, running what I imagined to be fingers and hands across the surface of the wood. Then, with great force, it prodded angrily between two slats into the mattress. Even through the padding it felt as though someone had viciously stuck their fingers into my side. I let out an almighty cry, and the wheezing, shaking, and moving thing in the bunk below replied in kind by violently vibrating the bunk as it had done the night before. Small flakes of paint powdered onto my blanket from the wall as the frame of the bed scraped along it, backwards and forwards. Once again I was bathed in light, and there stood my mother, loving, caring as she always was, with a comforting hug and calming words which eventually subdued my hysteria. Of course she asked what was wrong, but I could not say, I dared not say. I simply said one word over and over and over again. Nightmare. This pattern of events continued for weeks, if not months. Night after night I would awaken to the sound of rustling sheets. Each time I would scream so as not to provide this abomination with time to prod and feel for me. With each cry the bed would shake violently, stopping with the arrival of my mother who would spend the rest of the night in the bottom bunk, seemingly unaware of the sinister force torturing her son nightly. Along the way I managed to feign illness a few times and come up with other less than truthful reasons for sleeping in my parents' bed, but more often than not I would be alone for the first few hours of each night in that place, the room where the light from the outside did not sit right, alone with that thing. With time you can become desensitised to almost anything, no matter how horrific. I had come to realise that, for whatever reason, this thing could not harm me when my mother was present. I'm sure the same would have been said for my father, but loving as he was, waking him from sleep was almost impossible. After a few months I had grown accustomed to my nightly visitor. Do not mistake this for some unearthly friendship. I detested the thing. I still feared it greatly, as I could almost sense its desires and its personality, if you could call it that. One filled with a perverted and twisted hatred, yet longing for me, 
or perhaps all things. My greatest fears were realized in the winter. The days grew short, and the longer nights merely provided this wretch with more opportunities. It was a difficult time for my family. My grandmother, a wonderfully kind and gentle woman, had deteriorated greatly since the death of my grandfather. My mother was trying her best to keep her in the community and for as long as possible. However, dementia is a cruel and degenerative illness, robbing a person of their memories one day at a time. Soon she recognized none of us, and it became clear that she would need to be moved from her house to a nursing home. Before she could be moved, my grandmother had a particularly difficult few nights, and my mother decided that she would stay with her. As much as I loved my grandmother and felt nothing but anguish at her illness, to this day I feel guilty that my first thoughts were not of her, but of what my nightly visitor may do should it become aware of my mother's absence. Her presence being the one thing which I was sure was protecting me from the full horror of this thing's reach. I rushed home from school that day and immediately wretched the bedsheets and mattress from the lower bunk, removing all of the slats and placing an old desk, a chest of drawers and some chairs which we kept in a cupboard where the bottom bunk used to be. I told my father I was making an office, which he found adorable, but I would be damned if I'd give that thing a place to sleep for one more night. As darkness approached, I lay there, knowing my mother was not in the house. I did not know what to do. My only impulse was to sneak into her jewellery box and take a small family crucifix which I had seen there before. While my family were not very religious, at that age I still believed in God and hoped that this would somehow protect me. Although fearful and anxious, while gripping the crucifix under my pillow tightly in one hand, sleep eventually came and as I drifted off to dream, I hoped that I would awaken in the morning without incident. Unfortunately, that night was the most terrifying of all. I woke gradually. The room was once again dark. As my eyes adjusted, I could gradually make out the window and the door and the walls, some toys on a shelf, and even to this day I shudder to think of it, for there was no noise, no rustling of sheets, no movement at all. The room felt lifeless, lifeless yet not empty. The nightly visitor, that unwelcome, wheezing, hate-filled thing which had terrorized me night after night, was not in the bottom bunk. It was in my bed. I opened my mouth to scream, but nothing came out. Utter terror had shaken the very sound from my voice. I lay motionless. If I could not scream, I did not want to let it know I was awake. Yet I had not seen it. I could only feel it. It was obscured under my blanket. I could see its outline and I could feel its presence, but I dared not look. The weight of it pressed down on top of me, a sensation I will never forget. When I say that hours pass, I do not exaggerate. Lying there motionless in the darkness, I was every bit a scared and frightened young boy.
If it had been during the summer months, it would have been light by then. But the grasp of winter is long and unrelenting. I knew it would be hours before sunrise, a sunrise which I yearned for. I was a timid child by nature, but I reached a breaking point, a point where I could wait no more, where I could survive under this intimately deviant abomination no longer. Fear can sometimes wear you out, make you threadbare, a shell of nerves leaving only the slightest trace of you behind. I had to get out of that bed. Then I remembered the crucifix. My hand still lay underneath the pillow, but it was empty. I slowly moved my wrist around to find it, minimizing as best I could the sound and vibrations caused. But it could not be found. I had either knocked it off of the top bunk or it had... I could not even bear to think of it. It had been taken from my hand. Without the crucifix, I lost any sense of hope. Even at such a young age, you can be acutely aware of what death is and intensely frightened of it. I knew I was going to die in that bed if I lay there, dormant, passive, doing nothing. I had to leave that room behind, but how? Should I leap from the bed and hope that I make it to the door? What if it is faster than me? Or should I slowly slip out of that top bunk, hoping not to disturb my uncanny bedfellow? Realising that it had not stirred when I moved trying to find the crucifix, I began to have the strangest of thoughts. What if it was asleep? It hadn't so much as breathed since I had woken up. Perhaps it was resting, believing that it had finally got me, that I was finally in its grasp. Or perhaps it was toying with me. After all, it had been doing that for countless nights, and now, with me under it, pinned against my mattress with no mother to protect me, maybe it was holding off, savouring its victory until the last possible moment, like a wild animal savouring its prey. I tried to breathe as shallowly as possible, and mustering every ounce of courage I could, I reached slowly over with my right hand and began to peel the blanket off of me. What I found under those covers almost stopped my heart. I did not see it, but as my hand moved the blanket, it brushed against something. Something smooth and cold. Something which felt unmistakably like a gaunt hand. I held my breath in terror as I was sure it must now have known that I was awake. Nothing. It did not stir. It felt dead. After a few moments, I placed my hand carefully further down the blanket and felt a thin, poorly formed forearm. My confidence... An almost twisted sense of curiosity grew as I moved down further to a disproportionately larger bicep muscle. The arm was outstretched lying across my chest, with the hand resting on my left shoulder, as if it had grabbed me in my sleep. I realised I would have to move this appendage if I even so much as hoped to escape its grasp. For some reason, the feeling of torn, ragged clothing on the shoulder of this nighttime invader stopped me in my tracks. 
fear once again swelled in my stomach and in my chest as I recoiled my hand in disgust at the touch of scraggled, oily hair. I could not bring myself to touch its face, although I wonder to this very day what it would have felt like. Dear God, it moved. It was subtle, but its grip on my shoulder and across my body strengthened. No tears came, but God, how I wanted to cry. As its hand and arm slowly coiled around me, my right leg brushed against the cool wall which the bed lay against. Of all that happened to me in that room, this was the strangest. I realised that this clutching, rancid thing, which drew great delight from violating a young boy's bed, was not entirely on top of me. It was sticking out from the wall, like a spider striking from its lair. Suddenly its grip moved from a slow tightening to a sudden squeeze. It pulled and clawed at my clothes, as if frightened that the opportunity would pass. I fought against it, but its emancipated arm was too strong for me. Its head rose up, writhing and contorting under the blanket. I now realised where it was taking me. Into the wall. I fought for my dear life. I cried, and suddenly my voice returned to me, yelling, screaming, but no one came. Then I realised why it was so eager to suddenly strike, why this thing had to have me now. Through my window, that window which seemed to represent so much malice from outside, streaked hope, the first rays of sunshine. I struggled further, knowing that if I could just hold on, it would soon be gone. As I fought for my life, the unearthly parasite shifted, slowly pulling itself up from my chest its head now poking out from under the blanket, wheezing, coughing, rasping. I do not remember its features. I simply remember its breath against my face, foul and cold as ice. As the sun broke over the horizon, that dark place, that suffocating room of contempt, was washed, bathed in sunlight. I passed out as its scorny fingers encircled my neck, squeezing the very life from me. I awoke to my father offering to make me some breakfast. A wonderful sight indeed. I had survived the most horrible experience of my life until then, and now. I moved the bed away from the wall, leaving behind the furniture I had believed would stop that thing from taking a bed. Little did I think that it would try to take mine, and me. Weeks passed without incident, yet on one cold, frozen, bitter night, I awoke to the sound of the furniture where the bunk beds used to be, vibrating violently. In a moment it passed. I lay there sure I could hear a distant wheezing coming from deep within the wall, finally fading into the distance. I have never told anyone this story before. To this day I still break out in a cold sweat at the sound of bedsheets rustling in the night, or a wheeze brought on by a common cold, and I certainly never sleep with my bed against a wall. Call it superstition if you will, but as I said, I, I cannot discount conventional explanations such as sleep paralysis, hallucination, or that of an overactive imagination. 
but what I can say is this. The following year I was given a, a larger room on the other side of the house, and my parents took that strangely suffocating, elongated place as their bedroom. They said they didn't need a large room, just one big enough for a bed and a few things. They lasted ten days. We moved on the 11th. What do you have to say to that? What do I have to say to that? <laughs> uh, do you guys have any, like, do you have any, like, sleep paralysis or, like, anything, anything along that vein? I like mm. I had like a like a pretty scary sleeping situation for like a for like a small child. Yeah. Um that like sort of reminds me of not not the end part. <laughs> no like no like like demons no or like otherworldly demon. <laughs> or yeah, no otherworldly beings, but uh I used to stay at my grandparents' house and they lived in like a house they built themselves in the middle of like 50 acres of forest. Oh. Um Sweet. and like now, I love this stuff, uh, and I like even inherited it like once he passed away. But my grandfather had a animal skull collection. I was just gonna say skull collection, but that's leaving it too vague. Um, but he had like a skull collection, but he kept it in the spare bedroom, which is like where I would sleep. <laughs> oh my god! Um, and yeah, so like. Uh, when my mom needed like a break, she would like send me to my grandparents' place, and I'd stay there for the weekend. But like, I hated it so much, and I'd always like beg her, like, like I don't want to stay at grandparents' house. Um, but yeah, it was like same sort of like horrible dread. Where like I'm like, but please don't don't make me stay here. Um, but like also because it was like surrounded by there were like also like coyotes that you could hear. Uh, and then there were also like raccoons that lived in the <laughs> attic. <laughs> this is the most alive house except the skulls. <laughs> um, Incredible. <laughs> so yeah, I can like definitely like not not so much the paranormal aspect of the story, but I can definitely relate to the like nightly dread. Yeah. Super creepy. Amazing. Did you ever tell your grandparents to remove the skulls, please, when you're there? Mm, they're kind of like suck it up. It builds character. Was sort of the vibe. Like they, <laughs> they're sort of like teach you how to skin a rabbit kind of vibe like and i had a pet rabbit at the time you're in the forest now For real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so they were not they were not very like sympathetic to to that <laughs> it turned out okay though yeah so. no it definitely built like a lot of character <laughs> oh man that's an amazing story Thanks. super amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah kids i i remember that in my bedroom as a child there was this. There was always like light playing on the walls, moonlight or whatever, street light maybe. And I remember one spot on the wall, I just let my imagination run loose and decided that there was that totally looked like a witch and it freaked <laughs> me the fuck out. And I was like, oh, just looking at this spot and just trying to not think about it. But as a child, you get freaked out so easily. It's really you get carried away so yeah. quickly. I feel. I used to have a thing where I had to tuck my. Uh, like duvet slash duna slash comforter, depending on where you're from. Comforter. <laughs> yeah. Never heard that before. I use I use comforter. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're the odd one out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I had to 
my warm sleeping implement, <laughs> I had to like tuck it all around my body. So my feet were tucked under and like everywhere around me was tucked in, kind of like I was being mummified in a way. Otherwise I would feel like really like, like vulnerable like if like you had in, like really appendages easily. like leaning like off the bed. I can I never did like the, the tuck in, but I did like if I woke up and I had like an appendage like leaning off the bed, I'd like quickly like yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you don't know what's under that bed, but yeah. might <laughs> might go and lick your hand. Oh god, remember that story? Yeah. I feel well, like every, everyone. We I feel like everyone's heard like some everyone version of yeah. that. Like I've heard like a few like slightly like or like versions with like slight variations. I yeah. think that one's like a classic. Yeah, yeah. But Google it, I guess. If <laughs> you know what we should do before we run out of recording space here, we should quickly go through crediting everybody and plug whatever we want to plug. <laughs> so. Edwin, thanks so much for being our guest here. That was fantastic. Thanks, Bella, for reading. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> thanks to Donor 115 and Chad here at Donor 115 for setting us up with the sound for the room. Um, yeah, you might have noticed a few noises in the background. That's because there is a bar adjoining this room. No, it's ghosts. God. Oh, a bar of ghosts, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Very chipper, melodical ghosts. Yeah. yeah. Some ghosts are friendly. Just <laughs> <laughs> jamming, those ghosties. Edwin, do you want to plug anything? Do you have a website? Um, I have some, uh, like, a, like a blog spot and a website, neither of which I've updated recently. But <laughs> if you want to see some really old work, check it out. What is the address? Um, you know what? I can't, I can't. I don't even know. But if you look up, if you, like, look up my name, it'll be, like, the first what's two it, things. What's your name? Up. Adrian Kamar. We'll put a link on our Facebook page. Yeah, it's yeah. There's, no one's gonna guess how to spell the last one. <laughs> okay, and the thing that I want to plug is the next episode of this podcast. Woo! Woo! <laughs> uh, and the theme for next week, next week. What am I saying? Next month is it's all in your head. So creepy. Oh, we should also thank. Timothy Eve, aka oh, Windows, yeah. for making an amazing theme. I can't believe how good they are. It's so good. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks so much, Tim. Thanks, Adrian. Thanks, Bella. And uh, thanks, Yuri. <laughs> yeah. We'll see you. We'll hear you. You'll hear us next month. Tschüss. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Say bye. <laughs> oh, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>